All right, folks, you've got a Bible. Um, open up to Jeremiah 5. We're going to be studying 7 and 8 tonight, but we will read, read a few verses from 5 and uh, probably just 5 and 6 before we get into chapter 7. Um, if you weren't here last week, and most of you were, uh, we had a very heavy conversation last week. Um, heavy conversation in terms of convicting because we were, uh, we were um, confronted with the reason why God was going to judge Judah. Um, now, we may say that uh, the reason he was going to judge them was, uh, is not something that we're dealing with in our time, in our country, but I don't, think that, uh, I, I don't think that it's wrong for us to understand what God was saying to them and be aware that some of the sins that they were guilty of, we, not me or you necessarily, but we in our world, in our country, may very well be guilty of as well. So we need to hear what God is saying to Judah because he may very well want to say the same thing to America. Um, and uh, while we might not get America's attention, we can get our attention and the church uh, needs to uh, respond as we can. And you say, well, we're just a few people. Um, we're just one church in the sea of hundreds of thousands of churches. That's true. Um, but revival has to start somewhere, um, and prayer has to start somewhere. Uh, and uh, why not here, and why not with us? So we're, we take this seriously, and we pray for God to give us clarity. Um, in chapter 5 and 6, Jeremiah, or God through Jeremiah, lays out the reasons for the judgment that's coming on Judah. Uh, we hear early in Jeremiah that the sin of Israel was idolatry. Uh, we see the actions that idol worship produced, though, in chapter 5 and 6. Chapter 3 and 4, God says you're guilty of worshiping idols. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, chapter 5 and 6 tells us what they did as a result of their idol worship. Um, we talked extensively about idol worship last week, but the way to summarize it the best is idol worship is I worship right? Does that make sense? Idol worship is me worship. The drift of humanity is always inward. Uh, not that we avoid people, we just prioritize ourselves. Now, again, you know, part of me says don't feel bad about doing that, but that's shame on me because I should feel bad about doing that. But we all do that. It's not something we do maliciously. It's just something we do. It's just what we do as people because people, um, you know, care about themselves before others. It's just our nature. Uh, again, we don't do, we don't hear this a lot, but our tendency, um, this tendency of selfishness is really core to our fallen nature. Uh, I want you to think about it. If you re remember the book of Genesis, Genesis is really um, not just about uh, the origin of Israel. It's really the origin of people, um, the origin of the world. And what we see over and over again in Genesis after the fall is this tension between individuals. And I think what God is trying to tell us is the tension that we have in the world today that's at much larger scale between nations and nations, people group and people group, it started as a tension, as a, as a, as a tension between individuals. Um, in Genesis 3, right after the fall, Adam and Eve have a conflict. Adam blames Eve for the sin. They don't take responsibility for it. They blame each other. They blame the snake. They blame whoever they can. So in the beginning, when the fall happened, the first instinct of man was to blame somebody else. It was to be selfish and find somebody else. So what was Adam wanting to do? Well, if, if he can blame Eve, then he at least isn't as guilty as Eve. So that's the nature. That's our nature as, as people. Again, we do this subtly. He wasn't saying he wasn't responsible. He was just saying, well, I might be guilty, but I'm not as guilty as her because she's the one that asked me to take of it or, or so forth. So we see that even in the next chapter. Cain is jealous of Abel, right? God says, Cain, I don't accept your sacrifice. I accept Abel's. Cain is jealous. Cain kills Abel. So again, it's conflict between individuals. Chapter uh, 
12 of Genesis, Abraham just recently chosen to be God's man, right? I'm going to bless the nations through you, bless the world through you. I'm going to start a nation through you. Abraham and Sarah end up in Egypt, and what does Abraham do when he fears like his life is at risk? He throws Sarah under the bus. They're in Egypt, and Pharaoh says, well, hey, that's a pretty good-looking lady you have with you. And Abraham, fearful that he might be killed for the sake of them taking his wife, says, well, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Have at her. And again, we don't even imagine doing that. I hope you couldn't imagine doing that. But in the culture, in the world that they were in, men had all the authority. Women were traded like cattle. Women were a commodity, which is a horrible thing to think about, but it it was the reality of the day. Abraham throws Sarah under the bus, literally throws her to the wolves to save himself. Now, does that mean that Abraham didn't love Sarah? Of course, it was his wife. He loved her. But when, it, when push came to shove, his sinful nature said, whatever I got to do to protect number one. Now, later on in Genesis, remember Genesis 16, Sarah is discouraged because she can't produce a child for Abraham. So she has the broad idea that I'll let Hagar be my surrogate and she can have a baby for us. And then when she has the baby, I'll take the baby and it'll be like mine. Well, of course, the story goes that Hagar gets pregnant and Hagar is not about to turn the child over to Sarah because it's her baby. So what does Sarah do in response? She convinces Abraham to exile Hagar and the child because she didn't get what she wanted. So you, you see, in the beginning, these, these stories are, full of, are, are all about conflict between people being selfish because what does sin make us do at its core? It makes us selfish. It even, and I think what Genesis highlights is, it highlights that even within the family unit, even within, between those that we love the most, we would be willing to do things that we aren't proud of. And again, maybe we're not as sinful as Abraham or as sinful as Cain or as sinful as Adam, but you know, Abraham's a pretty good guy. So I, I don't know about that. I don't know if I'd like to, I don't, I don't know if I put myself up there above him. But remember the story of Jacob. Jacob manipulates both his dad and his older brother to get the blessing. I mean, think about that. Jacob, his dad is dying. He's blind. He's feeble. He's on his bed about to die. And Jacob lies to his dad to steal something from his brother. And again, you think, well, didn't Jacob love Isaac? Did he love Esau? Did he lo-? Of course they loved each other, but I think the stories highlight that at its core, sin makes us do some pretty selfish stuff. Esau wants to kill Jacob in response. Jacob then ends up in a, a land uh, uh, far away, and he marries two different women, and his father-in-law and him continue to play games with each other because they want to see who's the smarter one who can pull more tricks and get their way more. Jacob has a favorite wife over the other, and you see that his wives are quarreling with each other. Leah and Rachel are trying to make each other jealous and see who can be the better. You know, again, we can't even imagine, you know, having a favorite wife. That's not even right, is it? Uh, You know, but again, the stories in Genesis reveal to us the core of our problems. We see Joseph tattling on his brothers, his brothers throwing him in a well in response. All these stories reveal the origin of conflict in the world. It's the heart of man, the heart of woman, the heart of people. We're very selfish. And we would so we would as soon cut off the knees of the ones we love if it means to get our way. And I know, I know, as Christians, God has brought us out of this. Maybe you can remember your life before you were saved, and you can say, absolutely, that was who I was. Maybe you would even confess, as a Christian, you are still that person sometimes, but you have learned to 
prevent, you've learned to stop yourself before you do those things. But whether we do the, whether we do the things outwardly, we sure do think about those things, don't we? Um, we are willing to take somebody else down or walk over somebody to get our way. Now, we don't always do this maliciously. Most of the stories in Genesis, they weren't premeditated acts of spite or vengeance. They're spur of the moment. They're just things that people do and they think, oh no, I can't believe I did that. But of course, Jesus would say, out of the heart of man, out of the heart of woman, comes these things. And, and this is where Israel comes in. God started the nation of Israel uh, and, and the, his intent for the nation of Israel, um, I have here in our first point, the nation of Israel was established to be a nation with a communal conscience. So what does that mean? That means that there was to be an awareness of their joint belonging to God and their responsibility for one another. Now, was salvation not an individual thing? Yes, it's individual. Was it not personal? Yes, it's personal. But Israel as a nation was established so that every person would be aware that we belong to God with one another and we're responsible for one another. Why? To directly counter and overcome this fallen curse because what does Genesis tell us about our sin? It makes us selfish and it makes us view each other as obstacles and as enemies, even the ones we love the most. So Israel was wired together, was joined together with his communal conscience so that we might be aware that we are not each other's enemies, but we are, as Cain mocked, we are each other's keepers. But this was an area that Israel dropped the ball time and time again. And this is where idol worship came in. They cared less for one another. They traded their faith. I have it here at number two. They traded their faith, a faith meant to unite them under one God for a faith in many gods. So you see what I'm saying? They were meant to worship one God as one people united under a single God who held all of them accountable and who united them together, but they, were tur- they, they traded that in for faith in many gods and many idols. They had an idol for rain, an idol for fertility, an idol for wealth, an idol for this, an idol for that. And each person clung to that idol as a means of getting the farthest ahead, getting the highest up, getting the most, and getting the best even if and especially if they could get ahead of somebody else. Religion became a landscape of competition as people saw after gods who would prosper them over the next person. So that's the scene in Jer- that we come to in Jeremiah or that we enter into in Jeremiah. So as this shift happens, as they race to the top and as God begins to chasten them, Jeremiah opens up and God is chastising Israel. He's convicting Israel and he's holding them accountable and he's warning them of judgment. But they don't realize why he's warning them. They don't realize why he's chastening them. They don't realize why he's disciplining them, disciplining them and threatening to do worse. So they begin to look for somebody to blame. Because what do you do when you feel like that, you know, whenever you don't feel like you're the one that's guilty, you look for somebody else. And Israel, because of that core sin that we all have, they begin to point the finger, they begin to look around. So we read back in Jeremiah 5 that Jeremiah himself thought the blame for the judgment um, that was coming on them must fall on somebody besides the religious people besides the elite and the rich and the, the leaders of the country. Because, of course, they're not the problem. So back in chapter 5, Jeremiah says to himself in verse 4, Surely 
It's the poor that are at fault. Now, the reason why he blamed the poor is because the leaders and the religious leaders and the elite in the country pointed at these people who were the farthest behind, who were the lowest, who were the most struggling, and they said, well, of course, it's their problem. They're not as blessed as us. They're not as good as us. They don't do as much as us, haven't done as much as us. So surely it's their fault. Surely they're the problem. So Jeremiah thought, because he trusted in the religious institution of the day, he thought, well, I guess they're right. Surely it's the poor who are at fault because they don't know God. They don't worship God. They're the least of society. You know, it's easy to point at those that seem to always be fumbling the ball and causing trouble as the reason for the chaos that's fallen on the world. Maybe we've been tempted to do that. Jeremiah finds out that he's wrong. He finds out that the rich and the powerful that he's trusted in and sought counsel in, he found out they were not interested in God and that they really only cared about themselves. And God says in chapter five that the progress they had, the blessing, the growth they had was not of God. It wasn't based in, it wasn't in spiritual, uh, it wasn't rooted in spiritual things. They only cared about themselves. They worshiped idols. They worshiped self, which then God said, uh, he spoke to the division in the society that he was not pleased with. Um, he spoke to everyone in their own little corner in their cutthroat behavior and actions. And God identifies that not only have they forsaken him, but they've forsaken each other. And again, this is impossible to ignore, and maybe it's not a direct parallel or a direct comparison to us in our day and age, but I don't think we can ignore it. Back in chapter 5, God says to Jeremiah in verse 25, your iniquities have turned the good things from you. Your sins have withheld the good things from you. And then he goes on to tell them what these sins are. And he says in verse 28, speaking of the leaders of the country, the people that Jeremiah once trusted him, he says they've grown fat and they're, they're sleek. They surpass the deeds of the wicked. They don't please the called. They don't please the call, plead the calls, the calls of the fatherless. Yet they prosper. The right of the needy they do not defend. God says, shall I not punish them? So God has a problem with Judah because they have forgotten to intercede for, to care for the least of, the, the least of those in society. Now, we closed last week asking this question, when are we going to take responsibility to care for the ones this scripture tells us to care for? Now, our generation gets confused about this, and it gets lost in this because of politics. And we talked about this last week. We talked about the different economic structures and all that stuff. And we made the decision that the problem, um, the solution is not politics, but the solution is found in God's Word. Now, we can't allow, though, we can't allow the politics of our current generation distract us from a situation that has been a problem for every generation. Before there was Republicans or Democrats, before there was socialism or capitalism, there was these same problems, which is why I think God's Word is the only pure thing that we can turn to and trust in. So I want us to hear what chapter 7 continues to say about this subject, and I want us to talk about what we can do to address this area. So God sends Jeremiah to the temple to address, to confront, and address the religious leaders with this message. So chapter 7 is a standoff on the temple mount between Jeremiah and the religious leaders. And again, this is not a political issue for God. This is a spiritual issue. The faith community, us, but I say faith community because the temple was the faith community in the Old Testament days, the church is now, but the faith community 
cannot ignore the destitution and division in society. It is very easy to kind of retreat to our own little parts of the world and not feel like we have a responsibility in the world. Now, I don't claim to have the answers, all the answers as to how we can solve the problems in our world. But this scripture makes it clear to us that we can't ignore them. So somewhere between not knowing how to fix it, but not being able to ignore it is where we're at tonight. So if you, if you don't always agree with me, just know that I'm not claiming to know how to fix it completely. But as a pastor, I just know that we can't ignore them anymore. So we can't ignore it. It's easy to say, well, you know what? In our country, because I agree with you, on maybe, maybe this isn't your opinion, but I, my opinion is politicians make it worse on certain groups of people. There are certain groups of people in our country who are in worse shape than others that have really been caused, politicians has made it worse for them. Maybe you agree with me, I don't know, but I, I believe that. But honestly, a lot of things have made it worse on a lot of people. Before there was an America with all the problems that we've got, there was problems with people in another land and another generation. So it's not really right for me to say, well, it's their problem, it's their fault and their fault. That's just kind of an excuse, I think, for me. So it's the faith community's place to figure out how to make things better, no matter what is working against people, because if you think something's working against people, of course they are. Of course there's a lot of things working against people. But ultimately, God is most displeased here at number six. God is most displeased when his people cease to be his hands and feet. So we've got to figure out how can we be his hands and feet to make things even slightly better than they are. So now I'll say this again. This is heavy stuff. It isn't just confined to obscure Old Testament chapters. It's all over the New Testament. And we'll cover some of those uh, scriptures. But chapter seven, verse number one through four. This is what Jeremiah comes to the temple with a word. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from, this, from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of, the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, these sayings, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. Now, what is that repetition about? There was kind of this idea that, well, we're the religious people, we're in the temple, so we can't be wrong. We're the holy people, we're the righteous people, we've never been out in the world and 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 so forth so their reliance was on their appearance of holiness their appearance of godliness but jeremiah comes down on them and says in verse three i see your worship but your ways are not in step with your worship now it's not not news to us to hear that god is not simply pleased with worship he is pleased with ways that have been amended by worship which is what we have there in number seven worship is a waste if our ways have not been amended now i want to want to uh, read to you you can turn there with me if you want to for just a minute um, i want to read to you a scripture from isaiah that is similar to this uh, that we may study in depth on another occasion but isaiah chapter one uh this is uh, what the prophet isaiah so if you want to look over there you can 
Uh, but Isaiah 1, verses 15 through 16, this whole chapter addresses it. But listen to what Isaiah says uh, to Israel a couple hundred years before Jeremiah's generation, but they were dealing with the same problem. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. So what does that mean? When people are worshiping. Not saying that God doesn't want you to worship with your hands. He's just saying, you spread out your hands, even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. So God has a problem with Israel as they've assembled for all their festivals to worship, yet their hands are bloody. Now we'll talk about that in a minute. So God says, wash your hands, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings before my eyes, cease to do good, learn, cease to do evil, learn to do good. So even back then, this was, you know, 150 years before Jeremiah, God had a problem with, with Israel. Their worship was this, but their ways or their deeds were far from their worship. Their lips were praising God, but their hands and their feet were not serving God. Now, what we learn from Isaiah and what we learn from Jeremiah is every suffering person. Now, this is where this might be, uh, this might be too much of a blanket statement for your taste. But I wanted to be bold with this because I feel like it gets us a little bit, it forces us to think about this. Because this is what Isaiah was telling them. Every suffering person and lost person that we could help that we don't leaves blood on our hands. Now, I know I don't like that statement because it makes me feel bad. It makes me feel guilty. But what was the blood on the hands that God was talking about? The blood of suffering people, as in literal blood, here and now. Big picture, the blood of lost people. What does God tell Ezekiel? If you don't tell them, blood is on your hands. But in Isaiah's scripture, that's literally referring to people that were suffering in that current generation that were dying that they weren't helping. So I brought in the lost category because I feel like that's important because this isn't just about helping people now. It's about helping people eternally. We can feed people today, but they go to hell tomorrow. That's not going to help their eternal cause. But God cares about people today, which we can't ignore. So every suffering person, every lost person that we could help, that we don't help. Now, I, I went to church with a, a gentleman. Uh, his name was John. He wanted to help everybody that he could. Every time someone asked him for help, he came to the church wanting to help them. And there was a lady who handled the money that would always say something like this, we can't save the world. We can't say, you can't help everybody. Well, of course you can't. But the problem isn't helping everyone when it's one person in front of you. And I feel like the devil loves to put those things in our minds and those distractions that say to us, well, you can't help everybody. You can't save everybody. What are you going to do for the world? The whole world's full of people like that. When God brings one person to us, then that tells me that one person is our burden. Again, it's not going to solve everybody's problems. But God expects us to do for the one what we wish we could do for everyone. And that's really what I want to think about for the rest of this time. Because we're going to talk about specific categories of people that I think we, I don't think, I know that we've got to consider and we've got to think about how can we or what can we do to help them. Because if blood is on our hands, that's a serious thing, isn't it? And I'm not saying blood's on your hands, but I know as a pastor, blood, is on, blood could be on my hands because our hands are not just meant for holding Bibles and hymnals or raising them in worship. They're meant for service. They're meant for love. So it would be a shame to waste our worship 
in here when there's service to do out there. So before I get more specific, uh, does anybody have any comments? If you have, maybe save your questions for later because we might answer them. Any comments to that? Um, any, anything you want to add to the conversation before we get into the next few verses? I promise I'll make you feel better before this is all over with. <laughs> Chapter, uh, verse, or verse number five. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment, and judgment is the word justice, as in do the right thing between man and his neighbor. Who is your neighbor? I say it's anybody, it's the closest person to you. Now there are some that will say a neighbor is someone who believes like you. I don't think the Bible defines neighbor as only someone who is a believer. I think the Bible defines a neighbor as anybody that God created. Now we can get to the discussion of what it means to be a brother or sister in Christ. The New Testament talks about that, but using this understanding of neighbor, listen to verse six. If you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in this land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. So God says, here's how you can prevent this judgment. If you remember the cause of the stranger, the orphan, the widow, if you don't shed innocent blood, now we'll talk about that, and if you don't walk after other gods or idols. Now, we've danced around this enough, but here is explicitly and clearly what I believe God's heart is close to and what God wills for us as his people. Verse, uh, I have it here at number 10 and 11. God wants us to be a united community committed to three things. Sanctity of life, Charity and integrity. Sanctity, charity, and integrity. Now, sanctity is the idea that everybody is valuable and everybody's life matters. Two things I want to emphasize on is children, whether they're unborn or orphans, unspoken for, and foreigners, because the Bible has a lot to say about foreigners or strangers. Charity towards the poor or the oppressed. And integrity towards everybody. Integrity is morality, doing the right thing, treating people well, respecting people, not sinning against somebody or sinning with somebody. These three ideals were core to the identity of the Old Testament faith community and the New Testament early church made these their identity to the core, took these three things and said this is what we're all about. Treatment of the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed was a premium for the early church. Valuing, valuing children and minorities, upholding integrity and morals between one another. Those, those three things, those three pillars were, were what defined the early church and what made the church distinct in the pagan world. Maybe you don't know this, but in the early, in the early days of the Roman Empire, really in the, old, in the ancient world, children were aborted. Obviously, they're still being aborted. But children were abandoned. They're still being abandoned. But the, in the Roman Empire, children were often left at riverbanks, hoping that they'd either be washed away in the water or eaten by wolves or by, by wild animals. The Christians were known for going to the river and 
finding these children. Every single day, they would go to the riverbanks. They would look for children. They would take these children to their homes. They would raise these children as their own. Now, if you read 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians is all about these three things. Chapter 5 through 7 is all about morality, how, what it means to be pure, sexually pure, or, or just doing the right thing with each other. Uh, chapter 12 is all about unity. 13 is all about love. 16 is all about helping the poor. So you see in 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the early church, these three things were the core of their mission. Now, I think every church, every church must have a conversation about what we are doing to advocate for poor people, oppressed people, children, unborn children, and foreigners. I know not every church can work on the same scale. I know that we all, we can't fix all these, but there are a lot more chapters in the Old Testament with verses like Jeremiah 7 verse 6 than we would probably expect. And we don't read them a lot because we don't spend a lot of time in them. But the prophet's message over and over again was what are you doing for the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, the weak, the poor, the helpless? So I don't think we can ignore this, this, this message. Now, it's hard to juggle, juggle everything, but these requirements that God lays on us cannot be ignored. On top of you know, our, our call to maintain dignity and, and, and decency toward each other, um, Jeremiah uh, tells us in verse number 8, through 15 um, regarding integrity some things that we need to hear verse verse 8 behold your trust in lying words that cannot profit will you steal murder commit adultery swear falsely burn incense to Baal walk after other gods whom you do not know and then come and stand before me in the house which is called by my name and say we are delivered to do these abominations as in hey well I'm saved and forgiven so it doesn't matter how I treat each other Jeremiah says who who, who in the world thinks that's okay now, it's, we got to be honest, there's a problem in the church, there has been a problem in the church for years, of hip hypocrisy. I, I will say this, as the church has, I don't, the church hasn't gotten smaller, but as the church has become more and more entrenched in believers and less and less a place that people go for social reasons or less and less a place people go because it's the thing to do, I guess what I'm saying is there are more, there are churches in today's country, in today's America, they're smaller, but the people that are there are godly people. They're believers. They're saved people. Maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, there was a lot more people in the church that were guilty of living hypocritical lives. I would say most churches like ours in our country, they may be smaller than they once were, but the people that are here, they understand that integrity and morality are important things and that duplicity and, and hypocrisy are not acceptable. So, of course, we can't claim salvation and continue to live in sin, but people in Jeremiah's generation were doing that, and, of course, people in our generation still do that. But uh, to move on to these other, these other two pillars when it comes to sanctity and charity, uh, I'm reminded of the book of James. James, of course, uh, in chapter 2, writes about two things, about partiality in the church. Uh, he talks about, you know, the poor coming into the church and being overlooked and being, you know, uh, not treated as well. And, and James asks us this question, are we partial in any way? Now, I got to ask you that up front here because there are times that we excuse ourselves from loving people because we already decide in our hearts that they don't deserve our love. And then James goes on to say that if we have faith but do not have works, specifically in how we care for and treat one another and 
how we understand the needs of the world. James says our faith is not alive, our faith is dead. So I would encourage you to read James chapter 2. He deals with this as, that we're about to talk about. Um, again, I think it's easy for us to know that there are sins that are wrong that we should not commit. I think when it comes to integrity, we understand what it means to be people of integrity. Not saying we're perfect, but I think the areas that we need the most help in are the areas of charity and sanctity. So I want to talk about um, what it means to practice charity. Now, in the ancient world, uh, God had, a, had laws b- uh, given to the Jews about remembering the poor, remembering the fatherless, remembering the widow. Uh, I'll remind you from Leviticus chapter 19 that Israel had a system in place specifically to care for the poor in their society. Um, we know it as gleaning. Uh, it's, it's the Hebrew word pe'ah, uh, which is found in the book of Ruth, where Ruth was a widow who went to the uh, harvest uh, of, of Boaz and took from his, uh, from his harvest. This is what Leviticus 19 gave the Jews. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not glean your vineyard, nor you shall gather every grape of the vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger." So in the ancient world, in, the, in Israel, basically you were to not cut, you were to leave the four corners of your field for widows and orphans and poor to take from. Um, now again, the ancient, in, in Israel, the religious law was the civil law, so the government and the temple worked hand in hand. So you, know, you could think of this as a welfare system, but that's kind of what it was. But if you owned a field, a big field, small field, doesn't matter, an acre of land or 20 acres of land, it was a measure out that you were to leave the four corners, a certain part of those four corners, you were not to take from that harvest. Also, you were to tithe a tenth of your harvest to the temple, which was also distributed to the poor and to the needy. But you were to leave those four corners for people to go through every day to take from as they needed. Also, Leviticus tells us this about strangers. Leviticus 19, verse 33. If a stranger dwells with you in your land, you must not mistreat them. The stranger who dwells among you shall be, shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for we were all strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, that one might be a little more difficult to hear, because in our country we have a major immigration problem. The immigrants aren't the problem, the system is the problem. And it causes us to, be a lo- causes us to argue about people for whom God loves and for, for whom the Bible tells us that we are not to treat as someone who is foreign, but treat as someone equal to us. Now, again, I'm not a politician. It's not my place to figure out the politics of it. It's my place to figure out the Christian virtue of it. So here's the thing. The solution to these causes when it comes to the poor, when it comes to immigrants, the solutions are often touted by politicians to be found in government. But I'm here to say, whether the government can ever solve these problems or not, that's not up to me to wait for them to do it. As the church, we've got to figure out what can we do to help them. Because God holds us accountable for what we don't do, not for us to wait on someone else to do it or to vote the right person in office to do it. Because this is not a government thing for us. It's a Christian thing. Now listen, I'm pro-life, and a lot of politicians are pro-life. But those same politicians don't have much to say about, don't have much to offer the help for immigrants and vice versa. So that tells me that the answer is not in politics because one might help the one category, but they won't help the other category because nobody wants to, nobody's, 
serving the Lord, they're serving the country, and that's fine. That's the country. The country is not God, and the country is not the church. So vote how you want to vote and support who you want to support in politics, but that doesn't mean that we aren't still responsible to care for the poor and care for the foreigner. And that's where I think the church often steps back and says, well, I don't want to get into politics. This isn't politics. This is what we are called to do as Christians. So my question for us tonight is where do we start? I'd love to know, right? We must ask the Lord for help on how we can help the poor, help the stranger, advocate for the stranger, advocate for the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, the oppressed, go down the line. We may not feel a particular burden for these, but God's Spirit has laid this burden on us and asked us, what are we going to do about it? You know, Jesus told his disciples over and over again, if you want to be followers of God, you, you need to sell your possessions and give it to the poor. And people looked at him like he was crazy. And sometimes people say, well, he didn't really mean it. Sometimes people said he really meant it. And people want to interpret that all you want to. You can do that. If you, you can interpret that different ways if you want to. But Jesus, Paul, and James, and all the New Testament makes it very clear. We cannot ignore these commandments like Israel did. And Jesus said to Judas and to the disciples in, at the house of Bethany, you always have the poor with you. As in, the responsibility is never going to be gone. What are you going to do? And it's easy, it's easy, it's easy to say, well, it's not my problem, but this scripture makes it our problem. I want you to skip over to chapter 8. Um, listen to Jeremiah continue um, to, to uh, address the religious leaders who didn't want to accept this, who didn't want to acknowledge that they were guilty of not responding to these needs. Chapter 8, verse 8. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsehood. The wise men are ashamed. They're dismayed and taken. Behold, they've rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them. Speaking of their, their, the men being taken captive and taken to Babylon. Because from the least to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness or greed. From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely, for they have healed the herd of the daughter of my people slightly, saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed these abominations? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment, they shall be cast down. So if, if you will, we need to learn how to blush when it comes to this. We've got a lot of pride in our country, and I think it prevents us from being honest about this responsibility that falls on us. And again, I say this a lot, but this is why the church is so important. It forces us to consider everybody else. It forces us to remember that we are under one God. We are in a family of others who are not like us, who don't always look like us, dress like us, talk like us, but nonetheless are part of our family. Verse 14 and 15, Jeremiah speaks for the people. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourself. Let us enter the fortified cities and let us be silent there. For the Lord God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We looked for peace, but no good came. And for a time of health, and there was trouble. Jeremiah says, we sat still for too long and now it's too late. You know, I fear that we are at a crossroads as the American church. We've sat still for too long. 
Sometimes it seems we'd rather debate and accuse each other rather than advocate and love for each other. We'd rather build our kingdom than God's kingdom. I want you to listen to Jeremiah in mourning summarize all this. I would comfort, verse 18, I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart is faint in me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the people, of the daughter of my people from a faraway country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? And this is the response of the people, the response of the nations around Israel as Israel is being judged. Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with their foreign idols? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. This is Jeremiah talking. We are not saved. The herd of the daughter of my people, I am heard. I am mourning. Astonishment has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? He goes on in chapter 9 to mourn for the nation. But here's what i got to say to us before we close, church. Jesus can heal us if we'll follow him. He will lead us into restoring these three pillars, sanctity, charity, and integrity. And I wanted to kind of talk off script here before we close. Um, I think Baptists and I think evangelicals are really good at half of these. Now, you say there's just three of them. Well, I split one of them in half, so that means there's four, but I'll explain. We take integrity seriously. We want to do the right thing and be righteous. There should be, I'll say this, Baptist and evangelical Christians should be the most righteous people in the world because we love the whole Bible, we memorize the Bible, we go to church three times a week, we study the Bible, we listen to Christian music. We are the most holy of holy people by what we say we want to be. And I take that seriously. So Baptist, evangelical Christians, we have checked the box of integrity. I'm not perfect, but we should have that category covered. And I preach every Sunday morning and Sunday night about integrity and being the right kind of Christian we should be. I think we know what that means. But when it comes to sanctity, I think we've got some work to do. Now, again, evangelicals and Baptists, we are the most pro-life that you can be. I will always be pro-life, vote pro-life, support pro-life politicians. It's not a question. We advocate for the unborn. We are as pro-life as they come, but we need to be honest with each other about the other half of sanctity when it comes to advocating for those that are different than us. Because this is just me. As someone in my demographic, I don't often think about what it's like for people that aren't like me. Don't look like me, talk like me. You can interpret that how you want to. Most of our churches are not really diverse. We don't really have opportunities to walk alongside people of other colors, people who grew up in a strange country, people that are immigrants. So my prayer is that we would pray and consider how we can reach out to people that are differently than us. I'm not saying we break the law. I'm not saying that we do things, we, we support things that are wrong. I'm just saying if we believe, if we are pro-life, we need to be pro-life of every person, of every age, of every color, of every land. What does that look like for us to do? Well, I think it's something we need to pray about. Because we live in a politically charged climate that wants to always point the finger. And if we are pro-life, we aren't just pro-life for those that are unborn. We're pro-life for everybody. We're pro-opportunity. We're pro 
for, we're pro-life when it comes to every living person. Now, when it comes to charity, I think there's something we can work on as well. I think that we are the most giving and loving people in the country, yet we can get burned out really quickly because we often help people that take advantage of that help, and then we think, what's the use? And there are people in our country that honestly might take advantage of systems that aren't of the church, and it makes us discouraged about helping them. I hear you. But that can't stop us from being obedient to God because his heart still beats for the poor. Not only that they receive this world's good, but that they know him. He cares about their condition, so we can't just tell them about Jesus. We've got to help them and be there for them to support and to be and to give what they may need. So I want you to pray with me about how we as a church can uphold these three pillars. I think we're good on integrity, but we can always grow there too. But how can we be pro-life in the broadest of ways? How can we have, we can uphold the sanctity of life and how can we be a charitable people? Listen, y'all, y'all are generous. We are a giving church. But when the Bible says the church is a storehouse, it doesn't mean that it's supposed to store stuff up for the, for, the, for the world never to receive. The storehouse is so that it might bless the world. So what can we do as God's people to put charity and sanctity on the front line of who we are? Now, again, this isn't to condemn anybody here because I think we know we have the heart to do all these things. But it's a conversation we've got to have because Jeremiah is not going to quit talking about this. So we're not going to have to preach this same sermon every week. We're going to read these verses again. So I ask y'all to help me as a pastor because I'm burdened about this. Because you know what? Do you just put a sign up and say, hey, here's some free stuff? That's not charity. But what is charity and how can we be charitable? Because whether we, dis- whether we want to do this or do that, it doesn't remove the responsibility and the burden from us that we need to consider the poor, the widow, the fatherless, the oppressed, the stranger. Um, What can we as a church do to leverage not just what we have, but all of y'all, all of us have that responsibility. So I want to be a pastor that gives you an opportunity to obey these verses, and I want to be a church that is known uh, for obeying these verses. Does that make sense? All right. Well, I know tonight was a little bit of 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 a... you know, of a drag, maybe <laughs> kind of a dense conversation. Um, but do y'all have any comments, any questions? I know we, this is really a two part from last week to this week. It's really two weeks worth of talking about this. I appreciate y'all being here. Uh, I appreciate y'all being interested in being engaged with this conversation. Um, but uh, just know that this is more about me trying to work through this, figuring out how to do it as much as it is saying y'all need to do it. Because uh, I think it's my responsibility to figure out how we can. Uh, be obedient so y'all have any comments any questions any uh, anything in response to uh to all that i don't claim to have it all right y'all bear with me i've not preached this stuff much before (laughs) um so i appreciate your your uh your patience and uh your being here any comments or questions all righty well let's just pray uh, and ask God to help us uh, to, uh, to be obedient to these, these commandments. Father, I love you, uh, and I'm, I take very seriously, Lord, these verses. Uh, I don't like to preach things that I'm not good at not only preaching but doing. Lord, I'm not good at doing this stuff. Lord, I love people. I don't have a prejudice uh, 
uh, bone in my body. I, I don't have a, I'm not uh, uncompassionate toward people. But Lord, I've got to confess that I don't do a lot to help the people that these verses mention. Um, I, I talk about the world and the problems, and I point fingers at the things in our country that either make things worse for these people or don't help these people. But Lord, I don't do a lot for them in and of myself. And Lord, it makes me convicted when I read these verses um, because you were judging Israel for ignoring these people and ignoring this calling. So God, I ask that you might would move in our midst tonight and you might would lay an idea, you would lay a burden on the hearts of somebody here that's listening, you would lay a burden on them and you might would move them to, to, to be the leader uh, in this initiative, in these initiatives. Lord, to be pro-life in the broadest of ways, to be charitable in the most impactful of ways, and to be people that uphold morality and integrity to the highest degree. God, thank you for these that love you and that are in your house tonight. Obviously, they're seeking your will above everybody else. But God, we've all got room to grow. So Lord, I ask that you might would help us and take us to that next level, that we might make a difference in our country. Uh, before, uh, before it be too late. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.